If you would please, first turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, I want to first read from verses 22 through 25. First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Listen carefully to the holy infallible word of God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, if you would, back to 2 Timothy 3. Reading verses 16 and 17 once again. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, how grateful we are to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that thou would bless our listening today, that we ourselves would be overcome by how wonderful, how directive. The word of God is for our lives. Bless us with this word. In Christ's name, amen. Doctrine is life. Life is doctrine. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter and Paul are in agreement concerning their view of Scripture. The two passages that I read before you this morning, 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, agree with each other. The passages can be viewed in harmony. Let me begin with Peter. You, Christ's church, Those of you who are true believers are the enduring word of the Lord. The word lives in you forever. 
That is what Peter is telling us in the church, those who are true believers. Now here is the question. How does God's word find its place in you? The answer is that the word of God finds its place in you through first the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. This is implied in 1 Peter 1.22. Secondly, the preaching of the gospel as stated in 1 Peter 1.25 and in 2 Timothy 1.13 and 4.2. And thirdly, the word of God finds its place in me as the Bible is read and it is taught to me. To what end does God's word find its place in me? Well, (laughs) remember, the end determines the beginning. We have been driving that point home again and again. For Paul, our present use of scripture sees us to our end. That is, the instruction of scripture enables us to be presently, now, complete equipped for every good work. We are in the last days. 2 Timothy 3.1, that whole bracket that we have pointed out concerning the context of that passage. We are coming before our judge. 2 Timothy 4.1, we are going to appear before him in his kingdom. Indeed, for our appearing before Christ, The scripture is usable, is usable to make us wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Hence, you appear before Judge Jesus as his beloved because you have been acquitted by the Spirit's application of Christ's Active obedience to and passive obedience on the cross. I have been acquitted for the final judgment day and I am acquitted now, right now, as I live by faith in Christ as the word of the Lord, the gospel which appears on every page of Holy Scripture, dwells in me. Dwells in me. Very, very personal indeed. The word of the Scripture endures in me forever. Think about that. Think about In terms of the context of both Peter and Paul's instruction to Timothy, I want to make a very important observation before I proceed. I have already preached on the confessional statement as it is applied in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the Bible is authoritative 
because the Bible says, the Bible claims to be the word of God. Just to remind you and to repeat, the authority of the Bible does not, it does not depend on me or depend on any of you. The authority of the Bible does not depend on me or you, nor does it depend on my belief that the Bible is the word of God. Rather, the authority and the infallibility of the Bible is dependent upon the Bible's own claims that it makes about itself to be the word of God. Now, the confessional and Reformed tradition is so rich on this exalted position of Scripture, accenting the Bible's own phrase, Thus saith the Lord, that we have seen a wonderful component component of this historic Reformed position emerge in the 20th century. This complementary position is captured in the passages that we are looking at here in Peter and in Paul. The position is simply this. The Bible is authoritative and infallible in light of its covenantal, covenantal position in the midst of the people of God. The covenant. The covenantal position in the midst of the people of God. God gives the scriptures in the context of redeeming his covenant children. The scriptures are given in the context of living our life. They are given in harmony of life in this world. This covenantal position has a rich, has a very rich practical element. If God is going to redeem a people unto himself, if God is going to condescend in covenant bond to a people who he is going to restore and exalt unto himself, then how on earth, then how on earth Could his word contain errors? Each word in scripture must come from his authority. Each word in scripture being the product of God's breath must be infallible and without error. Since each word is directive in our everyday life for eternal redemption in Christ. Do you see the point? If God is going to bring you to heaven to live in the holy sanctuary of his holy presence and righteousness. So that you will be engulfed in his perfect abiding place. Then you must have a perfect word to direct you towards his holy presence. And that word cannot deviate to the right or to the left. That word must be 
absolutely perfect, absolutely perfect for his covenant children in order for them to come before his holy presence. The what? What do we call it? The Holy Bible. The Holy Bible is infallible because of the end that is in view. Your your glorification in union with the eternal who holy, holy Son of God. It is utter nonsense to think that the Bible in its practical covenant context of life can have or possess any errors at all in its original revelation to its human authors. If it did not, if it did, excuse me, possess heirs, how could you be assured that your path is on the road of heaven at all? I have heard the argument again and again and again in my lifetime. Genesis 1 through 11 is mythology. And the question I always ask the person who advocates that position to me is if the Genesis 1 through 11 is mythology, how do you trust that the resurrection and the cross of Christ is not mythology? Well, I just believe. He's the guy that I did my doctorate dissertation was consistent. Probably the most honest biblical critic against the scripture. He just said, Rudolf Boltmann, the whole Bible is mythology. How would you trust it? How can you trust? If Adam and Eve is a mythical figure, how can you trust that the second Adam, the second Adam, is the one you are to believe in? No errors. But thanks be to God that he gives us in covenant life a word that is infallible, inerrant, and absolutely authoritative to direct us into eternal, eternal communion and fellowship with our triune God, joint heirs, Joint heirs, each of you. Joint heirs with Christ. Herein, in the covenant, 
the word of God is in you. Do you believe that? Do you live it? Do you savor it? Now we are in the position to more specifically look at the term doctrine or doctrinal teaching. What does that term, our phrase, mean in Holy Scripture as Paul endorses the term to Timothy there in 2 Timothy 3.16? In light of last week's message, I hope that it does not surprise you that the term does not carry the meaning of theory, abstract knowledge, the theoretical or theology as science. Rather, the Greek word has the meaning to teach and to instruct. The Hebrew derivative has the same meaning to teach and to instruct. For example, this meaning is easily seen in Christ's great commission as he leaves this world. Do you hear his words? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching, teaching the same Greek word, translated doctrine in other places, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Or look at 2 Timothy 3.10. Here Paul is addressing Timothy in our present context. We have seen this again and again. You, however, have followed my teaching, doctrine, instruction, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith. Now if you've listened carefully to these two examples, the one given by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the one given here by Paul, then it should jump out at you that there is no contrast between doctrine and life. Rather, in both examples, we are talking about practical doctrine. You see, Christ demands of the disciples that they teach or instruct all nations to observe all things that Christ commanded them. That is, instruct them concerning living, living the words of Christ. Furthermore, Paul dwells on the fact that he has taught and instructed Timothy in his conduct Aim of life, verse 10 of 2 Timothy 3. What do you think that is? What is he trying to construct here? What is he instructing Timothy about? It is living the gospel. It is living the gospel. What does the gospel look like? Well, what does it look like for Paul? As he instructs Timothy. It's my faith. Patience. Love. Steadfastness. Persecutions. Sufferings. Remember? 
Does those things include your view of the gospel? Faith, patience, love, steadfastness, persecutions, and suffering. Such words are words of action, of living faith, if you will, practical doctrine. In the true Christian life, there is no such thing as doctrine, teaching or instruction that just sits there, that just sits there. If you will, it must be understood as living doctrine. It is doctrine that is lived. Now this morning, let's go back to the Old Testament to see how basic the pattern for Paul's statement to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is in fact grounded, grounded in Old Testament revelation concerning the issue of teaching and instruction. If you wish this morning... If you wish, you can turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 1 of Deuteronomy, here Moses is telling the Israelites that they must listen carefully to the statutes and judgments of the Lord as Moses directly teaches and instructs them to live. They are to live the instruction. They must do the teaching from Moses. And the substance of that instruction is the word of God. His statutes and his judgments. Now watch this. To what end? So that they may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. Notice there in terms of the point that we have made already this morning. He uses the covenant name of the Lord in terms of the Therein the post their end, the possession of the land is given to them by their covenant Lord. It comes as gift. The end is the sovereign gift of God's grace. And as you look there at chapter 4, verse 10 of Deuteronomy, you see that such instruction must be passed from one generation to the next by those who fear the Lord. Are you hearing the Lord speaking to Moses? Gather the people to me. And that I may let them hear my words so that they let So that they let them hear my words, so that they may learn from to fear me all the days, and that they live on earth, and that they may teach their children so. Simply stated, in this Old Testament text, we are beginning to see that the heart of biblical doctrinal teaching and instruction is the will of. Of God. The will of God. 
In other words, the word of the Lord, whether in precept or statute, whether in commandment or historical narrative, which appears in his historical activity in time and space and through the revelation of his spoken communication as recorded in Holy Scripture is the revelation of God's will to read the Bible, to read the Bible is to read the will of God. One of the most infectious questions in the church today is the will of God. How do I know the will of God? The answer is the will of God is reading the Bible and knowing it. Next Lord Day morning, We'll look at that a little closer. How many of you spend time, lots of time, in the scriptures to learn the will of God in your life? Keep in mind what we are seeing and saying on the basis here in Deuteronomy 4, 1 and 10. And if you wish now, turn over to Psalm 143, verse 10. 143, verse 10. Notice this simple verse. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. The New King James has in the land of uprightness. Carefully notice in that one simple verse. Carefully notice the components of the verse. Teach me. Teach me to do your will. David ties instruction to doing. They are not to be separated. David is asking the Lord to teach him practical doctrine. About what? About what? About God's will. He wants to live the will of God as you can see in the text. And what does this mean? It means he wants to live the word of the Lord. After all he is. He is his God. Now note the invoking of the spirit the Holy Spirit in your verse there. Let your good spirit. What is the context of this statement? The answer to that is that teaching David to do 
the will of the Lord. How can you do the will of the Lord if you're not praying and invoking the Spirit of God in your life to direct you according to His Word in everything that you do? It's all there. It's all there in one single verse. Only through the goodness of the Holy Spirit within us do we do the will of God. Only the Holy Spirit can apply the will of the Lord, the instruction of the Word of God to our hearts and our lives. Is there any Is there any better example from the pen in Scripture, from the pen of David, than the great classic Psalm 51, the classic passage on repentance after his sin with Bathsheba? You read it again. See the invoking of the Spirit of God to help him live a life of faithfulness to the will of God and to confess his sin. So where do we want the word to dwell? Where do you want the word of God to dwell in you, congregation, in your heart and in your actions. The Holy Spirit, the final author of Scripture, enables us to live the instruction of the Word of God. He places it in our hearts. To what end? Not done yet. (laughs) In this one simple verse, we're not done yet. To what end? Here it comes. Look at the last phrase in verse 10 there of Psalm 143. So to lead David, the people of God, On level ground, the ESV has. Other translations have the land of uprightness. The land of uprightness. The land of righteousness. Look down at 11b to reinforce this point there and from David. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Out of trouble. When we're struggling, when we're struggling with the will of God, when we're frustrated, what are we asking? Bring my soul out of trouble, bring it into the realm of righteousness. Is that not your voice? Is that not your voice? You see, all the components 
of instructing and teaching that we found in Deuteronomy 4 are found here in Psalm 143, verse 10. Now, in light of speaking about living our doctrine, is the application of Old Testament Israel, Judah, America? Is that where we go with this? Absolutely not. The application is us, the church. Is us, the church. We are in these Old Testament texts. The prescription in the Old Testament for teaching and instructing the people of God is the same. It's the same prescription by Paul to Timothy and Peter to his audience. You want to summarize what we read in Peter this morning? You want to summarize what you're getting right here in from Paul to Timothy? All you have to do is look at one verse. Psalm 143. Verse 10. It's already been instructed consistently for the people of God. The prescription here is the same. The true people of God in covenant absolutely love God's instruction. Look in your heart this morning. Do you love God's instruction? His doctrinal teaching that is found on every page of Scripture as it reveals the will of God In a life of spirit-worked faith through the salvation that we have in the promised Messiah in the Old Testament, then through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Congregation, you must dig to see Love it. Dig to see the marvelous fabric of God's sovereign revelation. Paul's words to Timothy is not just an affirmation of a high view of Scripture. It is that indeed. But as Paul affirms his high view of Scripture, he incorporates how Scripture is to be taught. Paul, the ordained apostle of Jesus Christ, like Moses and the psalmist in the Old Testament, is appointed to teach and instruct the word of God. The document that is God breathed to Timothy who in turn is ordained to instruct and teach the church of Christ, the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy include also here Peter, are teaching and instructing the church in the will of God. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is present both in the word 
as author and in the hearts and the lives of those who receive that word under the conviction, the direction of the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit effectively implants the word of God in the lives of God's people forever, they are now thoroughly you in that word. You are now equipped thoroughly to enter the land. The land, the land that is truly without warfare. It is the glorious land of peace. It is the land that the scripture fully teaches to you and encourages you. It's the land of heaven itself. That is to what end the word of God presses us. The word of God is always pressing us to the eternal, eternal presence of a holy and most reverent God. Indeed, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask thy Spirit strongly upon us. The Spirit that has written the Word of God has revealed thy will unto us. Shepherd us by thy Word. Give us hearts that love, that love its instruction in terms of our own pathway. And, O Lord, help us to realize that the word abides forever. In Christ's name, amen.